to uh, St. James. Uh, glad to see all of you here. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching online as well. I'm glad that you're with us. Uh, just real quick, let me run through the schedule this week, and then you, you need to look at the other announcements for yourself. So uh, youth confirmation is on today, prayer meeting at 5.30 night. But then uh, this Friday at 11.30 p.m. is the New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve service. We only have one service. It's at 11.30 p.m. I know it's late. It's a candlelight service. Join us here for that Christmas morning at 9 o'clock, and then uh, the day after that is next Sunday, and that'll just be the normal uh, service schedule then. So, Okay, so several things this morning. Uh, first, the kids are going to come forward, and they're going to sing for us, and then we have uh, three ministry spotlights that we uh, want you to hear about, but first, uh, let's have the kids come forward and sing.
Uh, some of you remember several weeks ago when uh, Miriam was here and talked about her upcoming next summer ministry with Campus Outreach. Uh, this morning, the first of our three ministry spotlights is uh, Claire Cunningham, who was uh, one of Miriam's mentors. Is that too strong a word to use, Claire? Uh, she's kind of in the next stage of campus outreach uh, where she's doing it full time. So Claire's going to come and share with us a little bit about that ministry. So, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> Big change. Um, so like Pastor Miller said, my name is Claire Cunningham, and I work for Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry. And I just want to take some time this morning to share with you how God's been working on the campus, um, specifically at Bradley University. And so um, our mission statement is glorifying God by building laborers on the campus for the lost world. And campus outreach exists that God would be glorified and that his gospel would be proclaimed to all peoples and all nations. And so it's our desire that we would build life-on-life relationships with students, that they would come to know God and that they would mature in their faith and share their faith with others through evangelism and discipleship. And in Matthew 9, it says that the laborers are, or the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so we develop um, tools to give to students that, in the hopes that they would be established and develop into mature Christians, um, and that they would prepare to leave college um, ready to share their faith. And so we believe as a ministry that the uh, university campuses are one of the most strategic places to be doing ministry for four reasons. One, that um, the population on campus is obviously pretty high, and so it's really easy to meet and um, develop genuine friendships with students. Um, The availability of students is higher than it probably will be at other stages in their life, and that college students tend to have a greater openness towards change and just kind of exploring these things. Um, So for their first time, kind of on their own, and so they're definitely looking into kind of, who am I, what do I want to do, what do I believe? Just a lot of questions that students come to college with that we are just kind of a source of um, just help for them as they try to navigate that through college. And then a lot of the future leaders that we will see in businesses, hospitals, um, schools, um, will be coming from these college campuses. And so um, campus outreach is a means to a greater end, not simply the evangelization of the campus, but making disciples in every sect of the world. Um, And so whether that be schools, hospitals, government buildings, um, grocery stores, (laughs) wherever these students um, then decide to take their careers after college. And so... Our hope as a ministry is that students would graduate, mature in their faith, and to continue to share their faith um, with their families, coworkers, um, really anywhere. And so um, just one of our uh, ways that God has just been faithful um, and really encouraging this semester is through one of our students' hope. Uh, She became a Christian this past January, and it's just been really cool. She actually attended the Summer Mountain Project, which Miriam will be um, a room lead on this summer, and she established a habit of just continual um, time in the Word, reading, and through prayer, and just has developed a really high vision for what it looks like to share her faith on the college campus. And she's just, she's done just that this semester. She has shared her faith with a couple friends, um, one of them being Emily, and Emily has actually professed Christ this past month. And so it's just been really cool to see how God has just continued um, his faithfulness towards the campus. Um, And they'll both be attending our New Year's conference, which will be happening here in about a week. And so It's just been really cool, and I'm just thankful to be able to share this with you. And I'll be in the Narthex after church if you would like to learn more or have any questions. Um, I also have a newsletter if any of you would like some some more updates. I can put you on that list to receive more monthly um, just information about how God's just been working on the campus. So I'm going to welcome up Catherine as our next little ministry spotlight. So 
Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Katherine Ling, and I had the incredible privilege to co-found something called Imago Day and um, came out of 2020, out of that summer of racial unrest. And so that story started with my um, roommate in college. Her name's Dernique Ferguson, and she's Bahamian. And so through rooming with her and learning so much about race and how that plays a part in our country, um, I also go to school in the South, and that plays a huge part there as well. And so after that summer, her and our other friend, David Williams, decided to start Imago Day, which means the image of God. And we saw that there was a lack of seeing the image of God in others. And so through this, we do episode series calling on different pastors, um, young leaders, where we want to share how we can see the Imago Day in others, as well as in ourselves. And so we've done conversations like awareness, racial reconciliation, how to be an ally, how to love our neighbors. So I'll read our mission statement. To use this platform to bring awareness and acknowledgement while bridging the gaps on our campus through starting conversations that model how to love our neighbor and restore humanity despite race, ethnicity, gender, economic status, or any other factor. We want to be examples of responsible citizens as we live out our faith and come to a deeper understanding of true ethical action. Let this bring forth young leaders who will humbly become world changers for our campus and the kingdom of God, that they use their gifts to restore worth, dignity, and justice in everyone that they may come across. Above all, we pray that we remember Imago Day to reflect the image of God in others while seeing the image of God in ourselves. And so this started on our campus, but is growing. Um, we are speaking at a CCCU conference in Dallas in February, and we launch our curriculum in a school, George Fox University in Portland this February. So there's awesome things in the works and I would love to share with you more about it. And so you can see me after church, thanks. And next is Josiah, my little brother. <laughs> Big brother. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. Hi, church family. I miss you guys a lot. Um, I went to Florida this year and nice weather, but I do miss my church. So uh, while I was there, I got accepted to lead a mission trip um, to Honduras, and so I'd like to ask you guys um, and invite you guys to join me and um, my mission trip. So I am recruiting a team of 10 that I've already recruited with my fellow co-leader. She's awesome. And we are going to be building each other up, learning more about Christ with each other, and then going to Honduras and spreading Christ overseas as well. So our mission statement is so that they might hear, send me. So that's what we want to do. We just want to be God's um, tools to send his word all over the nations. Now for my uh, mission trip, I've chose Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 to be our verse. Let me read that for you. Therefore, since, the we, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured himself, sin, er, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. So yes, I am going on this mission trip, and I would like to, you guys to join me. Um, if you would like to hear more about it, come talk with me later. Thank you. Uh, let's stand. Let's pray for these three, and let's pray for our church, and then we'll continue with worship. Father, as always, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us in all the amazing ways that you do. And I just pray now that you would fill and empower these three for the mission that you've called them to right now, that you would be with Claire and with Catherine as they're ministering your gospel on campuses. Father, there are hearts that you are planning on changing. There are relationships that you're planning on restoring. There's minds and emotions that you're planning on changing with the power of your gospel. I just pray that you would empower these two women that as they would go forth, it would be underneath the auspices and with the full empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And when they speak, Father, may it be as an oracle of you. And be with Joe this next year too, Father, as he goes down to the Honduras. And may you transform hearts through the mission that you've called him to be on with you. And may we as a church be a part of these missions. May we, however you want us to be, Father, may it be, of course, with prayer and with partnership and with comradeship and Uh, with the giftings that you've given us and with financial resources that we can uh, support them with. Will you just lead us and direct us in this way? We want to see powerful things done. We want to see your hand at work in such a way that Claire and Catherine and Joe and the rest of us can't do anything but say, Father, you've been at work here and this has been something mighty that you've done. Would you be with our church service this morning, Lord? We want to see you work powerfully here amongst us. We want to be fueled up to be on mission for you. We want to love you more. We want to know more about you. We want to be with you. Will you come and be with us now, Father, in your word and in your sacraments and in the midst of your praises, may your name be glorified and magnified. Draw near to us now for your, good, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Let's read Psalm 80, 1 through 7 together. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is the uh, famous text from Micah 5, 2, where the prophet foresees that Bethlehem will be the town in which the Messiah com- from which the Messiah comes. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle readings from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, one line in here, or one concept in here that's going to tie in with the sermon text is this concept of God not really, really wanting sacrifices and burnt offerings. That's not really what he wanted. Instead, he gave his son a body to do the job that the sacrifices and the offerings were supposed to do. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's the Messiah talking. That when he said above, this is, you know, he's quoting the psalm now, you've neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Did you catch that? So I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in the offerings. A body I've given you. So the first stuff, the offerings, the stuff in the Old Testament have been abolished. Now he's establishing the second thing, which is this, verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
stand for the gospel reading. Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my, in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So let's look at this text, this uh, story of the, the angels come to announce to Mary she's going to have a baby and the baby's going to be Jesus. Uh, Mary's pregnant. She goes and visits her, uh, she goes and visits Elizabeth. And um, uh, let's, what I want to do is I just want to talk about the gospel. Just what does this say about salvation? Nothing super fancy this morning. Um, what can this tell, text tell us about the gospel and how it gets to me and you? How it gets to me and you. So three things. And um, again, super basic. The gospel is accomplished by God's body. You're thinking about um, uh, the Hebrews 10 text, it, it overlaps with that. The gospel is accomplished by God's body. The gospel is given to us by God's grace. And then the gospel is received by faith. So super simple, right? I mean, this is like Christianity 101 stuff. But I think it's worthwhile to think about this stuff every day of our lives. And so uh, let's think about it for the next few minutes here. So first of all, the gospel is accomplished by God's body. It's really a stunning scene when you think about it in terms of human history. We're all aware of, um, you know, the way that we as humans deal with problems in the world. Uh, there's a certain sort of protocol for this. You figure out what you need to take care of the problem, and the bigger the problem it is, the bigger the guns that you're going to need. And then you bring those guns to bear on the problem. So, so Harry and I lately have been thinking about World War I, and there was a lot of skepticism before World War I about whether or not anybody would be stupid enough to engage in general war like a war that encompassed like whole nations, like the whole world fighting against each other. And a lot of people said there's no way that that would ever happen. We're just too smart. And of course it does happen. And when it's done, Woodrow Wilson says, there's only one sure hope of preventing this from happening again. That's, that's actually the word he uses. There's only one sure hope. And that is if we can get the heads of all the nations to agree to come together and talk it out, regularly talk it out. He proposed the League of Nations, which the United States didn't get involved in. Later on, they do get involved in the United Nations. But the point is this, is that global war is not, not good. You don't want that. How are you going to stop it? If you can get everybody who's in charge to get together and talk about it, you need some sort of like big summit. And, and we're used to these things even today. You guys, you guys, if you pay attention to the news, you're familiar with the G8 summit and the G20 summit, or I guess it's the G7 summit now. You know, so if there's like some sort of like you know, we're concerned about the environment. What you do is you get the heads of big nations together to discuss what can we do to fix this. If you're concerned about economy, preventing any sort of recession, you get the heads of all the big nations together and they discuss how can we work together. And that's just, we're just used to doing that. And those things are good, by the way, too. I'm glad if our country engages in diplomacy and in those sorts of, uh, you know, getting together for those sorts of conferences to discuss things and how can we make the world a better place. But you and I know by now that those things are not perfect, that they, in many ways, are completely ineffective. Uh, although their goal is good, and so we should keep on doing that, but 
in some ways are completely ineffective. The, the League of Nations and the United Nations did not prevent the 20th century from being the most bellicose century in the history of humankind that we know. But more humans died in warfare in the 20th century than in all, in all of human history that we know about beforehand, combined. What are you going to do? And the answer is, well, you and I aren't going to do anything. The meeting to take care of the problem already took place. And it took place in our text here this morning. There's a, a little tiny rural town in Judah that nobody knows about. Its, its name is not mentioned in this text. It's where Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth live. And at this, it's a little tiny out in the boondocks, up in the hill country of Judea. And at this meeting is a upper middle-aged woman, her teenaged cousin, her baby who surprisingly to herself at her stage of life she's pregnant with, and the fourth character is God who is currently gestating inside the belly of her teenage cousin. And the four of them get together, and the plan that they discuss is the plan to rescue the entire world. It's almost superhero stuff. Now, the three others, the three others know that they're actually meeting with God. It's a crazy thing. Like, Elizabeth knows that she's meeting with, that, that, that this is God here. She says to Mary, that we'll get back to the bit about the baby leaping in her womb, but in verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, which is sort of a, a Hebrew slang that, that blessed are you amongst means you are the most blessed. You are the most blessed of all the women. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She looks at her, little, she looks at her teenage cousin and says, you are the mother of my Lord. Now, do you know what my Lord means? In the Old Testament up until this point, Lord language well, you guys, a lot of you have read the Old Testament. You know what Lord means in the Old Testament? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Who is that talking about? It's talking about God. God is the Lord. I am the Lord and there is none other beside me, he says in Isaiah 45. I'm the Lord, that's his name, that's what he's called. Elizabeth looks at her teenage cousin and says, you are the mother of my God, my Lord. I grew up in a context where we didn't call Mary the mother of God. We did not call her Theotokos. That was too Roman Catholic. It's actually a very, very appropriate thing to call Mary, though, to call her the mother of God. It's less of a comment actually about Mary than it is about her child. Her child, she's carrying around in her belly the creator God. Elizabeth knows it. Well, Mary knows it, too. If you just go back a few verses before this to chapter 1, verse 32, the angel Gabriel comes and tells Mary, you're going to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and it will be the son of the most high. God is going to be in your belly. And Elizabeth says to her in verse 45, blessed is she, this is talking about Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believes that what's currently growing inside of her stomach is the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who somehow mysteriously, even as he's connected to an umbilical, um, what's how do you say that, umbilical cord? Inside of her stomach, somehow mysteriously is causing the universe to hold together, is causing Mary's heart to beat. We don't know how that works, but that's what's going on. Mary gets, actually, we didn't read this in the text, but if you, if you would keep on going right at the end of our text, it flows into this incredibly beautiful song that Mary sings, which we call the Magnificat. My soul magnifies, the, magnifies is what we call the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, the Lord who Elizabeth just said is your child, 
and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's completely aware that the baby she's about to give birth to in a few months is going to save her, save her family, and save the universe. This is superhero stuff. Well, John the Baptist gets it too, right? John the Baptist gets it. And we'll unpack this in detail here in a few minutes. But Elizabeth, here's the greeting of Mary in verse 41. The baby leaps in her womb. Elizabeth interprets it this way in verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, she says to Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Leaped for joy. So, so all, all three of these know that we're dealing with God here. The fourth person here is God. This is, this is what makes our religion different than all the religions. This is what makes our religion different than all of the worldviews. Everybody in our culture worships something or other. And we, we don't all worship Vishnu, right? Or, or, uh, or Allah or Shiva. But when you worship those gods like that, what they say to you, you know, if, if you go to Allah or if you go to Vishnu or Shiva or any other number of gods and you say, what do I have to do to be saved? Whatever that means. We all have different definitions of salvation. For some of us, it's, you know, I just want to be successful or I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and know I'm okay or I want people to love me or whatever it is. Or I want to be right with God. For some people, that's what salvation is. When you go, they will, they will say, here's some directions. Here's what I need you to do. Here's sacrifices that I need you to make. Sometimes with pagan gods, it's literally sacrifices. Always, though, it's some sort of sacrifice. It's always time. And then that might not even be a pagan god. Again, it might be a secular god. It might be sex. It might be power. It might be money. By the way, all God, these are all good things, but you shouldn't worship them, right? And when you try to worship them and you go to them and you say, you, sex, make me happy. You, money, make me happy, fulfill me. It's going to say to you, I will. Here's a list of 10 things that you need to do. And you can do those things and you might feel great about yourself. You might feel bad about yourself. That's not the point I want to make this morning. I'm not talking about idolatry. The point I want to make this morning here is that the Christian God is the only one who says, you don't need information. You just need me to come and show up and I'll take care of it myself. And we're going to talk more about this when we get into the Christmas services here at the end of this week. But that's what Christmas is about, right? Is our God is the only God in the universe who becomes a human being. You and I, for those of you who are Christians, you worship a human being. God made flesh. This is superhero stuff. Salvation is about, it comes from the body of God, God's body. Like, like I said in Hebrews chapter 10. It doesn't just, it's not just accomplished by God's body. It's given to us by grace. It's given to us as a gift of grace. There are two things in this text which highlight this. One is in verse 43. Can you look at that with me now? Elizabeth says to Mary, she says, you're blessed among women, blessed is the fruit of your woman. Then she says in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So rhetorical question, basically what she's saying is like, there's no reason why I deserve this. Why, I, why should the mother of God, why should I be allowed to stand in the same room with the mother of the creator God who's determined to save me? What have I done to deserve this? I've done nothing to deserve this. All of us, okay, so what I'm gonna argue, so just let you know where I'm going with this, that we should be like Elizabeth, right? That, that before, before God, before the face of God, our attitude should be, what have I done to deserve this? But back up. All of us have this machine inside of our brains. Every one of you have, has a machine inside of your brains which tries to connect the things that happen to you with yourself. Try to connect the things that happen to you with how, does that, how, do, how do I get that? What have I done good to deserve the good things or what have I done bad? To, how have I caused this that's happening? A lot of you are familiar. It's okay to spoiler alert a movie that's 60 years old, I think. 
A lot of you are familiar with the song in The Sound of Music where the woman, uh, Julie Andrews' character, I can't remember her name, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Maria, yes. It's a very, very eager crowd. Uh, yes, Maria, that's the name, thank you. Uh, she's uh, talking to this good-looking guy, Christopher Plummer, so dashing. And she's just, you know, she's so amazed that he loves her, he's into her, right? And so she's singing this song. And, you know, in most movies, most romantic movies, salvation is the romance, right? We kiss happily ever after, and then we're together. That's like the, that's the salvation. Anyway, she's saying, to the, she's saying to Christopher Plummer, so here you are standing there loving me, you know, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, she says, I must have done something good. So, you know, she's drawing this connection, which, every, all, like I said, all of us have a machine in our heads which does this. This person is completely in love with me. What about me has caused that? There must be something that's causing that. It, or, like, what if it's bad? You know, what, what if Christopher Plummer breaks up with her? I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know if she would sing a song about it, but, like, I must have done something in my childhood that caused this guy to, like, not like me. Well, whatever it is, we draw this connection. And what I want to encourage you this morning is to be like Elizabeth, basically. Before that, though, I want to encourage you, don't go down that path. The path, of, you can't help it. The machine is constantly trying to do this, draw these connections. But you, you've got to be able to recognize it so you can short-circuit the machine, so you can stick, stick the spokes, st stick the stick into the gears and foul it up. Because down that path is psychological torment. Look, there's only so many choices you have if, that connection, if those connections exist, there's only so many choices you have. In one case, bad things are going to happen to you, but you're really convinced that you're good. And what's going to result is bitterness. Like, like, I'm a good, like I told you a story several weeks ago about when I got fired from that church. That was the, this is where I was. I'm a good person. Something bad happened to me. I was very, very bitter and very, very angry because those two things didn't match up. I didn't deserve it, right? The other choice is bad things are gonna happen to us when we think that we're bad, and the payout of that is despair. And you don't wanna go down that path. You know, bad things happen to me because I just deserve them, you know? I'm just, I must not be good looking or I must be dumb or I must have done something in my childhood to screw this whole thing up. It's basically like Eeyore, right? You don't want to live your life like that. You also don't want to live around people who are like that. Your third option is good things happening to you when you think that you're good and you deserve them. We've all been there before and nobody likes to be around us when we're like that. When, when good things are happening to us because, well, it's, it's our just due, you know, and I've earned them and that sort of smug, obnoxious self-satisfaction turns all kinds of people away. And eventually you get sick of yourself living like that. Your fourth option is good things happening to you when you think that you're bad. And what this tends to do is to draw a line between your behavior and consequences. Like if I can act however I want and treat people however I want, it's the Adolf Hitler syndrome. I get to do whatever I want and I end up like with power and wealth and people bowing down to me. Creates a context of amorality of like there's no sort of sense of like justice or right and wrong. So either one of these four paths, you know, you think that you deserve it, you think that you're good but you get bad stuff, you think that you're good but you get good stuff, you think that you're bad but you get bad stuff, you think that you're bad but you get good stuff. The path that all four of these are gonna lead you down is psychological, psychological torment for you and the people around you. So, but those are the only four choices, right? I mean like what else can it be? Well, the, the fifth choice is grace. The fifth choice is to say, I don't deserve anything, but I get all kinds of good stuff. 
What that leads to, check it out, what that leads to is, like what Elizabeth is, Elizabeth is gonna get saved, but she's under no, no sort of delusion that it's owed to her. She's under no sort of delusion that she's the kind of person who that, she's got that coming. And what that leads to, when you're around people who grasp grace, they're incredibly lovable. They're incredibly lovable. When they grasp it and live it, and I'll tell you why, is because they enjoy all the good things that are given to them without any sort of sense that like, I'm better than everybody else and this is owed to me. They take the bad things that happen to them in stride because they know that the God who's the sovereign king of the universe loves them and is doing all things well. Grace is really the only way to be a halfway decent human being in your own mind. And Elizabeth is living in that. The second thing here is the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is still talking about salvation is given by grace. Look at verse 41. Uh, so uh, Elizabeth, here's the greeting of Mary when Mary comes into the house. The baby leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, you know, hey, your baby is God. The baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. All of you who've had children living inside your stomach for any period of time know what it feels like to have a kid jostling around and moving in there. There's all sorts of reasons why that would happen, right? It's possible that like Angela would, when Angela was pregnant with Harry, uh, it's first kid, you know, and you're reading what to expect when you're expecting, and you're just convinced, and every other page tells you, like, the kid is dead, you know, when you, when you read that book, what to expect when you're expecting. And so, like, Harry wouldn't be moving around for a while, so what do you do? Like, is he okay? And Angela would, like, eat a frozen strawberry bar, and sure enough, like, within minutes, Harry would be kicking, you know, just give the kid a little sugar in there, and then he starts kicking and moving around. It's possible that maybe she had a frozen strawberry bar for, for lunch, and now the baby's moving. But she knows that's not true. She knows that what's really happening when she felt the baby kick, what she knows is really happening is that Mary's baby is God. Why? How can you make that leap? Well, for her, it's the Holy Spirit, right? End of verse 41 says this, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a desperately important part of salvation by grace. None of us have become Christians because we are smart or logical we become Christians because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts. And here's what I want to do this with this morning. I want you to focus on this. The Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is the same thing the Holy Spirit does in Elizabeth's life. And that is take you to Jesus. Interpret for you the Christ event. The Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. Now, there's all sorts of things that I'm not going to talk about this morning because we don't have time. I'm not going to say anything about the gifts of the Spirit I'm not gonna say anything about the fruit of the Spirit. There's lots to do here. There's lots to unpack. I'm gonna make it super simple. In fact, maybe overly simple. But at the base of the fruit of the Spirit and at the heart of the gifts of the Spirit is this reality that the Holy Spirit's number one job is to lead you to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit leads Elizabeth to Jesus. She hears the voice of Jesus' mom and she believes. She becomes a believer, all right? 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says this perfectly. St. Paul says, nobody confesses that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The only way that you can make the confession that Jesus is Lord is in the Holy Spirit. And that's what Elizabeth does. Elizabeth is in the Holy Spirit. That happens in verse 41. What happens next? Verse 42. The confession that Jesus is Lord. In your belly is my Lord, she says. Now, here's what I want you to think about this morning, and then we'll move on. I want to encourage those of you who wonder sometimes, do I really have the Holy Spirit? I, I think that you're putting, I think that you're thinking backwards. And I think what I want you to do is to change those around and put the cart before the horse and see what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit in the heart of Elizabeth here. It is not the fact, it is not the case that the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, let me say it this way. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life does not prove that you're saved, does not prove that you really believe in Jesus. It's the other way around. The fact that you really believe in Jesus, the fact that you believe that Jesus is Lord, is proof that the Holy Spirit's in your life. See, you, you don't get saved so that you can get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to you so that you can be saved. See what I'm saying? This is about grace. So, so I, and, I, and I've talked to some of you about the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what I want you to do is to say, what I want to say to you is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you think that Jesus is the creator God who came to die for the sins of the world and to repair the universe? And if you say, yes, I'm going to say to you, that's the Holy Spirit. Now, there's more there. There's more to the Holy Spirit than that, but that is baseline. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. All right? It's by grace. It's a gift by grace. So salvation is accomplished by God's body. Salvation is given by grace. And then finally, salvation is received by faith. Like I told you at the very beginning of the sermon, all three of the non-Jesus characters in this story have faith in Jesus. And, and you get little flavors of that, which I've pointed out so far. I just point, you know, I pointed out Mary's in verse 45, blessed is she who believed. I pointed out John's, he leaps with joy when he hears the voice of the mother of his Savior. Uh, I pointed out Elizabeth, she confesses, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? They all have faith. But can I, can I, can I buckle down just for a few minutes here on the faith of John the Baptist? John the Baptist has faith. John the Baptist leaps for joy because Jesus is there in the same room with him. And I want to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean that John the Baptist has faith? And some of you are smelling here a talk about infant baptism. And you should. I do want to talk about that briefly. But the reason why I want to talk about baptism is that, take infant baptism, there's actually a deep magic behind infant baptism that is the power behind it. You know, that's the reason why we baptize our infants. And, and, and the deep magic is faith. Faith. John the Baptist has faith in Jesus. Is John the Baptist able to articulate in his mind that his cousin, is that what you say? His cousin is the God of the universe? He's probably not thinking that in his mind. Is John the Baptist able to say with his mouth, Jesus is Lord? No, he can't say anything because he's uh, in utero. But John the Baptist has faith. Faith enough that when he knows it, he jumps for joy. Now, some of you, who, those of you who've been here for a while will have heard me give this illustration. I'm gonna give it again just because it's the best way I can do, best way that I can illustrate that babies can have faith. And it goes like this. Everybody, all of you who have babies or who have had babies, who have lived in the same house with babies, know what it's like when you have a newborn baby. People come and visit, or you see people at church, or you bump into people at the store, and everybody is like, I want to hold that cute baby. And so you, because you're a nice person, you have, you know, you have your cute baby in your arms, and typically, if it's not somebody who's too weird, you'll hand the baby over to them, and then you cross your fingers, right? Now, this happens every time when we do infant baptism here, and, and I walk, or we sing Jesus Loves Me, and I walk around in the aisles, and we all sing Jesus Loves Me with the kid in our midst for the first time. I, the parents and I, I'm always sort of freaked out, like, how is this going to go? Because I don't know this kid. It's your baby, and I'm going to hold it. So far, so good. There hasn't been any sort of dramatic squalls or anything like that. But you know what that's like. You know, so-and-so wants to hold the baby, and they hold the baby. You cross your fingers because you know you can count it, five, four, three, two, one, and then the baby starts getting restless, stretching a little bit, twisting their head around, and then there's the little 
squeals, and then there's the scream, and then you're like, what do you say? You're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Is that what you say? How, how do you stop that? No, what you do is you say, give her back to me. Why do you do that? Well, I mean, because you love the baby, but, but also because you know that's going to calm the baby down if its own mom is holding it, right? Now, that happens, that happens super early. That happens, I'm talking like weeks, you'll notice that happening, weeks into the baby's life. Why does that happen? The reason why is this, because that baby has faith in its mom. The baby doesn't even know its mom's name. It doesn't know what the word mom means. It can't use language. It probably can't even process it. It doesn't know like, so I lived inside this woman's belly for nine months. Okay, that means I'm biologically her child. Oh, that must be my mom. The baby can't think rationally like that. All the baby knows is, it doesn't even know this in the words I'm saying. It doesn't even know it in words. It's pre-verbal. Here, I belong. In these arms, I am safe. This is my person. Well, I don't know, however, like you can verbalize pre-verbal thought. The baby knows that. What do you call that? You call that faith. The baby trusts you. Now, here's the question. Why, why do I imagine that my baby could trust in me, but not in the God who's more real than I am? And some of you are going to say, he's not more real than you are. He's invisible and you're visible. And now you're just talking like a white person. You're talking like enlightenment person. You know, the, the, the physical is the real and the spiritual is fake. Trust me, that's just 200, 300 years old. And it's just us in, in America and in Northern Europe that think like that. The rest of the world doesn't believe like that. I'm just telling you, God is more real than I am. How can my baby, why can't my baby trust God? Babies can have faith in God. The Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches that infants can have faith in God. Let me give you a couple proof texts. One is in Psalm, 90, Psalm 22. This is good stuff. The psalmist, this is David in Psalm 22, says this. Yet you, he's ta talking to God. He says, God, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. God, you made me trust you. Now, now, we're not just talking about David trusting his mom like all babies do who've lived inside their mom's stomach. We're talking about God making, he uses the word, God, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. Why is, why, was, why is David a believer? Because God gave David faith in himself as early as infancy, maybe even earlier. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Babies can have faith. David says right here, I'll give you one more really good one. Psalm 71. For you, the psalmist says this, praying, for you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. Upon you, I have leaned, trust, that's trust language. Upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. Some of you are sola scriptura. You're buying into this, right? The Bible teaches that babies can have faith in God. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, we're not even gonna talk about what this has to do with pro-life, although that, that would be worth unpacking again. I can only say so much in a sermon. John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, leaps for joy because he has faith given him by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in his cousin who is in the womb across the room. Now, some of you, some of you might say, well, okay, so this is, no, you're, you can't be extrapolating from that to, you know, why we baptize infants and, and, and me and my own infants. This is something special. This is John the Baptist. This is in the Bible. 
This is miraculous. It happens by this power of the Holy Spirit. This is different. You can't just extrapolate and say this is the way it is with all babies because this is different. This is actually in the Bible and it's miraculous. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Salvation is miraculous. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not something that you reason yourself into. Salvation is something that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit as a gift by faith. And one of the ways he does this is he gives it to little babies Psalm 22, Psalm 75, Luke chapter one. He gives it to little babies who have no way to say, oh yeah, I figured that out. It's a perfect example of Luther's, the answer to Luther's third catechism question, right? So what does the third article of the catechism mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. My reason, my logic doesn't lead to faith, but instead the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the truth faith. See the pattern there? The Holy Spirit calls, I have faith. The Holy Spirit brings us into union with Jesus Christ, and then as a result of that, we have faith. Now, I think that you should baptize your babies. Nobody's surprised by that, but that's really not the main point I want to make. I want to talk about what I've been talking about is the deep magic behind infant baptism, which is this miraculous Holy Spirit-empowered gift of faith that's given to, that's given to whoever by the power of the word. It has nothing to do with their wisdom or their rationality. Else, the really rational amongst us would be the most saved. And the really irrational amongst us would be the least saved. It has nothing to do with decisions. Else, those of you with the strong willpower would be more saved. And those of you who are kind of wishy-washy would be less saved. What it has to do with the faith that God gives. All right? now, why am I saying this? Because some of you struggle with faith. Some of you wonder, do I really believe enough? And I just want you to look at the example of John the Baptist. Does John the Baptist really believe enough? What does that even mean for somebody who can't even think in words? What does that mean for somebody who's getting their nourishment from an unbiblical cord? Nailed it. What what, what does that even mean, believe enough? There's no no belief. He he comes in contact with Jesus. I'll I'll tell you what happens in in this verse. John comes in contact with Jesus. He has joy. He leaves. That's what it is. Do you... Do you come in contact with Jesus with joy? That's what faith is. Now, joy, you you guys already know this. I'm gonna cut this off at the pass. Joy is not happiness. Sometimes in the Bible, it overlaps with happiness. You can have joy and be happy at the same time. But joy in the Bible, you guys know this, is not just happiness. It's this sense of, I'm home. I belong here. I, I, I might not have it all right. I might be a bad son, but this is my mom's arms. I might not know what's going on half the time. I might not even know where my mom's at, but this is my mom's house and I'm here. That's what faith is. Do do you approach the Christ event with joy? Do you approach it with like, this is it, this is for me? I'm not saying do you you never doubt. Of course you do. John the Baptist, we we read this last week. In just a few years, John the Baptist is gonna say to Jesus, are you really the guy? The guy who had this miraculous salvation event is gonna end up having doubts. You know why? You tell me. A lot of you have had the miraculous salvation event and you have doubts too. Being saved doesn't mean you don't have any doubts. Being saved doesn't mean that you're always going to be perfect. Being saved doesn't mean that you're always going to be this faithful Christ follower. Being saved does mean, though, that you recognize that in Jesus is joy. That the problems of the world are going to be solved by Jesus. That that meeting in that room in that little podunk town in Judea 2,000 years ago was a conference to decide on how the world was going to be saved, and you're in on it. You're in on it. That's your plan. You might not get it. You might not understand it. You might not always even believe it perfectly but Jesus is your guy. 
in his arms your home. Stand with me and let's pray, then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for taking care of us all the time. Father, thank you for calling us by your name. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to open up our heart and our eyes, to see who you are, to see who you are in your son, Jesus. Thanks for not, thanks for not leaving us alone. Thanks for not sending us a blueprint or a, a manual or directions, as good as those would have been had you sent them. But thank you for sending yourself. Thanks for coming here in the flesh to take care of our problems. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning for all who struggle with doubt, struggle with knowing whether it is that they really have the Holy Spirit or whether they really believe enough. Father, by the power of your gospel, will you convince them? Will you cause them, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to cry out, Abba, Father, to, to recognize you as their father, to recognize Jesus as their brother? And however imperfectly it is that we're here in this moment right now, help us to know and believe that because your son Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you've made us your own. And you've begun to fix us and to fix all things through us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with all of our sister LCMS churches this morning as your word is preached and as your sacraments are celebrated and as hymns of praise are sung to you. Father, use your Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make your name big in this area, to grow your kingdom. With all of our churches, Father, this morning, all of our brother and sister churches in the area that are preaching your gospel, May we together see your kingdom grow here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. May we see justice grow up where once was injustice. May we see love grow up where once was indifference or hate. May we see honesty grow up where once was lying. May we see reconciliation grow up where once was fighting and racism and broken relationship. Father, may holiness spring up where once was immorality. May love for you and true worship of you spring up where once idols abounded. Father, we want you to do this for your own glory, but we want to see it too, Father. We want, to, we want a piece of the goodness as well. Do it in our hearts and through us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, do it here in Glen Carbon. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these prayers because you have joined us to yourself. You've called Jesus our brother. You've united us to him. And now you call us your daughters and sons. And so we come to you with boldness, asking these prayers, knowing that you'll hear them, knowing that you'll answer them out of love, by the power of your sovereign will, for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. This is in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, 
who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Don't forget to stop by and talk to Claire and Catherine and Josiah about their missions. Go in peace.